Hello, Jordan. What's up, Michael? I'm going to read you a tweet. Oh, wow. This might be my favorite tweet of all time from Naval. The modern struggle, lone individuals summoning inhuman willpower, fasting, meditating, and exercising, up against armies of scientists and statisticians weaponizing abundant food, screens, and medicine into junk food, clickbait news, infinite porn, endless games, and addictive drugs. Wow. Fire. Yeah, that was from 2019 too. I feel like it's only ramped up. Oh, it's gotten way worse. Man, that's crazy. And I I consider myself slightly above average in terms of like noticing these things and somewhat controlling my behaviors. So I can't even imagine what so many people are going through either consciously or unconsciously. I think the vast majority of it is unconscious. I think most people are just completely unaware of the matrix that they're in. Mm. I like the use of that that term, the matrix. It's a good one. They're all taking that that blue pill. Did you play video games growing up? I did, but only because other kids did, and I never really enjoyed them. I remember like all the time kids would be like, oh yeah, let's go play Halo. And I enjoyed it for about 15 minutes, and then I would be really bored. And I was never the kid who was like looking up cheat codes and playing all the time. I just, I was never that kid. I liked being outside and playing sports and doing that. Like I didn't really enjoy the video games very much. My brother loved them. Did you play video games? I did. Um, I think I was lucky to be born early enough where they weren't as addictive. Hmm. I never, I never got into Halo. I think I just missed that one. But like Nintendo 64. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I graduated high school in 05. I wasn't playing video games in high school, but in like grade school, middle school, I remember some like GoldenEye for Nintendo 64, Mario Kart. Like there yeah. were some solid games. Super on Smash there. Bros. Yeah. Um, and even like systems prior to that, regular Nintendo when I was younger and, uh, and Sega Genesis in there. But I, I mean, I completely empathize with the, the video game addiction like kind of time suck that overtakes not just kids these days but adults too primarily men um but also like all video short form vertical content like i know i keep beating this drum it's just i don't know i think i saw something the other day like like a reminder or maybe it was i don't remember what exactly the piece of content was but it was along the lines of what were the last five shorts that you watched? Man. And I, I didn't know any of the five. It's like, how much of that are you actually retaining? Man, that's so true. Yeah, that's really true. And the platforms are prioritizing those. I keep getting pop-ups on my Instagram saying, saying, trying to incentivize me to make more reels. Basically saying to the effect of reels get the most engagement. If you really want to like reach more people, make more reels. I'm like, oh, man. This is crazy. Like they, they, it really is the type of content that keeps people on the platform the longest, which is, um, I don't know if it's necessarily the best for building a business, but it's definitely the best for the platform. I just don't know if it's best for the creator. It's, it's definitely at least one component of a content strategy that's best for the creator or, or, or probably, 
But I mean, that's a completely different conversation because yeah, from a, from a creation perspective, if you want to reach a new audience, great. I'm talking purely on the consumer side as an individual, like there's, there's just so many, it's just so hard to resist that. Yeah, dude, it's crazy out there. And creators are getting so good about getting your attention and they're get, they're like they're really figuring it out. Like it's it used to be a very select group of people who are really good at drawing you in early on in the videos. And now I feel like it's so many people are really good at making content that sucks you in right away. It's pretty crazy. So many people are good at it, and all you're seeing are the best reels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it used to be you were seeing way less from people you didn't follow. So you're seeing mostly content from people who you selected to follow. And maybe a handful of them are really good at making highly captivating, like, you know, hooks you in kind of content. But now since the the switch over in the last couple of years from, you know, following people to following interests, essentially for you style content, we're just seeing the like content that has been watched the most and engaged with the most by others. So it's inherently the most addictive. I mean, if that's even the right word, but you get what I'm saying. And so that's all we're seeing in our feeds. Mm. I wish there was a way to just follow people again, like to only see content from the people you follow. You can on Twitter. Is there that option on Instagram or no? I doubt it. I doubt it. Zuck has uh, has some different plans, I think, than, <laughs> than, than Mr. Musk. But yeah, at the top of your Twitter home feed, it's like, for you and following are like, it says both of them and you can click either. The following is, is like boring out of your mind, right? Because it's everyone you follow and most of that stuff is like not that enticing. Whereas the for you is the cocaine of content, but yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. And I forget, I I think I told you about this. I forget what I was searching, but I was searching for something on Google the other day and I scrolled down and just below the fold on Google, they were recommending short form videos on, on actually they had one TikTok and three YouTube. So the four short form videos they recommended, one was on TikTok and three was on YouTube. None of them were Instagram. I think Instagram's a huge competitor for Google. So Facebook and Instagram probably won't show up, but I was very surprised to see TikTok and just seeing the short form content reels show up under a Google search. I didn't even touch videos. This was under the article section. It was under like all. I scrolled down and just below the fold, four short form videos. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. That's definitely at least in play. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how much uh, how much search traffic over the coming months and years, if or how much moves from Google and whatever other search engines people use to AI bots that are right now giving way better answers, or at least like the answer you're looking for, not always 100% right. Um, Meaning you and I have both sent screenshots back and forth using ChatGPT where it's like, well, this is blatantly incorrect. And then you you tell the bot that it's incorrect. And it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. You are correct. Like soluble fiber does have two calories or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I was also like, even despite some of the issues I've seen in ChatGPT, because I've asked it some very pointed questions about various topics, whether it's whether it's as simple, as simple as like deeper knowledge, understanding of fiber, which it knew. But when I probed it, 
initially it gave me a wrong answer. And then when I challenged it and I said, well, isn't that not true? It was like, oh yeah, actually you're right. I apologize. Or when I was asking about it, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, very pointed questions, there were things in it that it was it didn't get right the first time. And then when I challenged it and said, but didn't this happen first? It said, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. Sorry for that mis- in- incomplete information. Despite these things that I've been noticing with it, I've still really been opting to use it a lot, mainly because the thing that I really like about ChatGPT is there's a lot, but one of them is if I Google search something for an article, I can find it and I can also find wrong information, but I can't challenge that wrong information to the article. ChatGPT might give me some information that's either completely wrong or just slightly not nuanced enough. Either way, I can challenge it and then it will come back and it uh, it will often correct itself, which I find uniquely refreshing because I guarantee if I went to the author of the article and said, hey, but isn't that not fully accurate? There'd probably be some defense to it. Like there'd be some like, oh, well, no, but ChatGPT seems to actually, at least thus far, be willing to say, oops, you're right. I was wrong, which is very unique. That feels like it's only saying that because it got caught. Like, I don't think that when it says that, then the next person who prompts it on your same original Israel-Palestine question I don't think it's going to take into account that you corrected it in this place and then include that new information Mm. in that person's prompt. Like the only way we're catching it is on subjects, nutrition and the conflict in the Middle East, two of the things that you're most well-versed in, like 99% of subjects when we ask, like we're going to, most people who would ask the fiber question who don't know the distinction between soluble and insoluble fiber wouldn't have known to ask the follow-up question. Right, right. That And that for me is the biggest issue for sure, where it's like you have to have a real strong base level of knowledge in order to be able to call it out on its mistakes, which is, uh, it'll be interesting to see as it grows. I have been having fun having real conversations with it though. It's been, uh, it's been a more fun experience for me on ChatGPT than it has been on Google recently because you can have a real-time conversation. And also I saw something that that really struck me. One thing I've noticed about ChatGPT is it's, it feels very weird because it's it's AI, but it, it's very empathetic. Like, it'll, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry I made a mistake. It can, it has, it uses the words that give the perception of empathy, right? Perception of empathy. It's not empathetic. It's, it's, it's perceived empathy. And yeah. there was a study done very recently where people gave, uh, they submitted questions, medical questions. And they, the researchers gave those questions to real doctors and then also gave that same question to ChatGPT. And they analyzed the accuracy and also the, not only the accuracy of the response, but also how the response was perceived by the patients who gave those questions. Mm. And in 80% of the responses, ChatGPT scored higher, not just in terms of accuracy, but also in terms of the patient, they're receiving it in a way that is, more palatable for them and more comforting to them in which they felt more heard. And I was thinking, man, this is very interesting to see. And it might, 
it might force people who have otherwise been really shitty with people and have not been really good at taking the time to sit down and listen to them. It might force them to be like, okay, if I want to like actually stay afloat, I need to be kind and listen and empathetic because this fucking AI thing is giving off this perception of empathy that I haven't been giving my patients or my clients need, or whatever it is. to compete against. Yeah, exactly. Because essentially, whether we like it or not, we have to compete with AI at this point. Like that's, that's going to be, a, I think our biggest competitor now is AI is going to be every single business owner's biggest competitor. That definitely could happen. I'm I'm not hook line sinker on this is the future like I know a lot of people are at this point here May 1st 2023. Um we'll see. You're not ready to give that prediction yet. Um Yeah, I just don't know. I I mean there are people who think that general AI is coming and like the robots are going to take us over in 5 years and mm. and saying that like it's already uh, a foregone conclusion. Like I'm I'm not so sure about that. A, a book I always think back to is Peter Thiel's Zero to One, where he talks about like these four graphs, and I and I don't have it like top of mind exactly, but uh, one of them is that technology continues to, um, what do you call it, like develop uh, at an infinite pace. So the the chart would look like a hockey stick, basically, whereas Another example is like you're making rapid progress, but it begins to flatten out at some point. Mm, and and yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm just not smart enough to actually have a prediction on this, but I'm definitely not as bought in as a lot of people I've seen. Yeah, I'm pretty bought in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty bought in, man. I'm I'm consistently blown away with it, but who knows? We'll see. Um, would you Would you rather have an AI robot in three years? Uh, uh, doing brain surgery on you or a loved one, or would you rather have like a doctor of your choosing do it? It's a really good question. And no, and, and no, like the doctor who's using the AI as a sidekick. Cause that's the easy way out. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, listen, if I'm being very honest, I'm probably choosing the AI robot. Really? Right now? Three years. From you now. said three years, three, yep, three years yep. from now. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. probably using the AI. I mean, I feel like robots are less likely to make a mistake for any number of reasons. They're less, they're le less subject to outside issues who dude, there's so many things going on. Like there's so many things that could happen accidentally with a doctor that is sort of outside their control. Maybe a muscle cramp, <laughs> like a muscle cramp hurts their fucking finger or whatever. Like, and they, they snip the wrong way. Dude, I've, I've there are surgeries that have gone horribly wrong with with some of the best doctors in the world. I think every doctor will tell you they've made mistakes. With robots, I feel like there will be fewer mistakes, not not zero, but there will I feel like there'll be fewer mistakes due to human error. Okay. Let's uh let's May 1st, 2026. We'll see if uh I mean, we'll hopefully I don't need fucking brain surgery no, no, then. No, 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 no. <laughs> but we'll just see what the like you know, if robots are performing surgery on their own and if their success rate is better than the best doctors in the world. I mean, I, I'm, I really, not, I I'm think not saying that can't happen. I just think that that's a very short time frame. I think also there, there are already robots that are essentially human run, but from a distance, right? So for example, they have robots that will go to disarm 
bombs and it saves human lives because it doesn't have to be a human now trying to disarm this bomb, but they can control with fine motor skills this robot. So obviously it's not the AI technology in terms of the robots doing it itself and dealing with the problems on its own because there's a human behind it. But even that to me is like they have the dexterity, they have the nimbleness, they have the ability to do that stuff. It's there already and I think it will only get better. So yeah, I mean, and not to mention, I think about how as AI develops, then AI can develop more AI at an even faster rate. So, I mean, dude, I, I don't even know. I, I did see Musk say something effective. We need to put a stopper on this right now because it's it's developing a little bit too quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, but if, <laughs> if we put the stopper on it, like there are countries and governments who aren't going to put the stopper on it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so then you have this like, you know... uh competitive scenario there yeah i don't know i don't know jordan brother dude crazy shit it's really crazy well oh dude i'm on chapter five of tia oh let's go i really enjoy it so far so far i like it a lot i'm a big 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 fan right now any any big takeaways that you're enjoying so far i just really like the talk around the centenarians super centenarians i've always been interested in that it's been very it's it's nice because he's like, listen, there's clearly a genetic component to this. Clearly. There's without a doubt. Especially to, 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 set, li- to, li- to living past 100. Yeah, living 100, past 110. It's like, he's like, clearly there's genetic component to this, especially considering how many of them said that they smoke and drank for a huge portion of their life and never exercised. It's like, clearly, there's some things that like some people just win the genetic lottery. But I also like how he's he's making it a point to say, there, that doesn't mean there aren't things you can do to extend your health and lifespan and who knows, maybe also achieve that as well. Um, so just like you and I have spoken about for years, how genetics play a role in everything, but they don't determine everything. Um, it is very, very cool to hear about that. And I just love the storytelling aspect of it and, and hearing about these centenarians, super centenarians and all of that. And it also makes me analyze those in my life and in my own life, personally, to see like, listen, how do I feel right now? I'm 31. What's it, what am I going to feel like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? When I'm 60, am I going to be able to compete with guys who are 40? Am I, when I'm 80, am I going to be able to compete with guys who are 50 or 60? Like, that's really what I want. Uh, and to be able to, so, so it's, I love how you're smiling because I'm bringing up I'm, the competition aspect. I'm smiling because. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know when, exactly. When I'm 82 years old. And I'm a black belt. Can I beat a 45 year old brown belt? Like, can I That's take him? I'm 35 100%. years older. <laughs> That's exactly where I was like, all right, am I going to be able to do like, you know, triangle chokes and maplatas without worrying about my knee blowing out? Like <laughs> <laughs> Are you liking it so far? I am. I'm enjoying it a lot. I just got through. So, uh, uh, chapter six, I think, is the beginning of when he starts talking about the four horsemen individually. Um, these like, uh, leading causes of death, essentially of, of, uh, preventable death. Um, and so I think chapter seven was heart disease. Chapter eight, I just started as cancer, which, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm excited. We'll do like a full episode on, on the book here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I also really like the, um, the distinctions between medicine 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0. The way he broke those down and and he spoke about so many different things, but how 
how Medicine 2.0 sort of looks at averages, Medicine 3.0 really looks at the individual, which I just think it's it makes sense at that at this point in, in in technology. We have the ability to really look at individuals over the long term as opposed to taking averages from subgroups of people. Um, I also I really love the story. I loved it. And I, I it was very sad as well. The guy who discovered airborne bacteria and he was like they noticed that the women who were giving birth a large percentage of them were dying and he was like oh well maybe it's because we're doing autopsies on people who died the day before and not washing our hands and they put that guy in an insane asylum and he died in an insane asylum and that same year another doctor figured out oh he was actually right like it was because we're like giving them these germs it's like man there's so many awful and terrible and sad things about that. And also just understanding human nature where it's so easy for us to just dismiss someone and say, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's not how it's done. That's not how it's done. You're wrong. It's like, man, that, I think that ha- it happens in every aspect of life in in every, every, every realm that we, that we belong to every realm of life, every different discussion, every different topic, like we can, it's so easy just to fall back on, well, that's not how it's been done. That's not right. And to get upset or scared of what someone is saying and how that might bring about change as opposed to being like, you know what, maybe you're right. Let's dive into it more and, and pick it apart and see what the potential is here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a safe bet to say that you're wrong and you're usually going to be right. But oftentimes you're not like that guy who who uh, made that discovery. What year? Do you remember like what century that was in? Um, it was earlier in the book, right? It was yeah. It was, I think it was chapter two or chapter three. I, I forget. I forget the uh, the distinction between medicine 2.0 and 3.0 in terms of medicine 2.0 being reactive and medicine mm. 3.0 being preventative is amazing too. Like yeah. And and just makes so much sense. And I hate to like I hate to point the finger and blame the system, uh, but it would be awesome if, for example, um, you know, catching polyps as a precursor to colon cancer was one of the things that you can easily get checked, uh, but because it's expensive or for whatever reason, we don't do it until X age. I don't know if it's 45 now or if it's 50 now, I believe it's one of those two. But I know Peter was like, I can't remember if I had this in a private conversation or if this was on a podcast recently, but you don't remember. So um, <laughs> he, he paid out of pocket to get his first colonoscopy yes. at like yeah. 37 or something because he talks about these diseases starting to develop early and when mm-hmm. they start to develop early, if you can, if, if it does start to develop early and something like that, I think if you don't catch it within five years, that's not good, but it's for a grand or two grand or whatever it is, even if it's a 99.9% or 99.5% chance he doesn't have it, if there's a 0.5% chance he is starting to develop it and they catch it, like you just saved his life. So is, is that amount of money worth it? Um, yeah. Yeah, man. A hundred percent. Atherosclerosis was another one. Like basically these people who are dying from sudden heart attacks in their forties, fifties, sixties, even seventies, they start to like the calcification process begins as early as their twenties or sometimes their teens. Uh, if it's developing in, in the teenage years, I think that's usually, he says that's usually driven by primarily genetics, but it's still good to know. Like mm-hmm. if you're a, 
if your aunt and your dad and like your grandpa all died in there, you know, before the age of 65 from a sudden heart attack, it's like, then you really need to be taking nutrition, zone two cardio, like all of these preventative measures really seriously. Yeah. And to look at medicine 2.0 and look at these numbers and maybe someone their fasting glucose or whatever is like just in the normal range, but it's so close to being to being pre-diabetic or diabetic. Mm -hmm. And the doctor will just be like, yeah, like you're not there yet. So you're you're, you're in the normal range, but it's like, hold on. But they, they're very close to not being. And so how about we take action now more than just saying, yeah, you know, improve your diet or whatever it is. And how about we give them real direction? Because it's sort of an arbitrary line where it's like, well, you have it now or you don't have it. It's like, it's, you're in that range. Like you're there you, and we got to take more care of that. And also, dude, you're going to laugh when I say this. I'm becoming a real conspiracy theorist, bro. I didn't know you were going to go in that direction, but I love it. Dude, it's, it's so funny. I used to like look at conspiracy theorists and be like, you guys are crazy. Like what the fuck is wrong with you? And now I like stay, staying somewhat on topic specifically in regard to like big pharma, for example, like medications mm. being just given out at like, it's, I used to be like, no, no one would do that just for the sake of money at the expense of people's health. And now I'm like, I'm an idiot. They absolutely would. And they mm. do. And it's just, uh, it's so, especially after the last three years when so many of the people who are labeled conspiracy theorists and they were silenced, it's actually come out that like, oh no, they were right, but we're not mm-hmm. actually going to like make big news about this. We're going to s- quietly say they were right and then move on. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I'm becoming more and more of like, man, what else have they have they lied to us about, or what else is going on behind the scenes that that we don't want to know? And it's just, it's very, man. I'm I'm becoming a real conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking to take this in directions other than the pharmaceutical industry and and uh... And basically what, like, are you looking to have other conspiracy theory discussions right now? Or are you trying to stay on this one? Dude, I'll pee it up. I'll do whatever you want. I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. I was just, I was specifically referring to big pharma and how mm-hmm. I just believed in the the good of humankind and how they were like, and there have been some great things about pharma and they've, they've done some really incredible things, but also there are some really terrible things that are going on behind the scenes where they're just doing it for the sake of making more money. That's like, Oh shit. Like it's just, it, it's blowing me away. It's crazy. So I mean, I'll do I'll talk about anything though. I didn't have anything ready to go. I just, I just didn't want to limit you if you were trying to like, you know, go somewhere else. You never stifle me, brother. I'm okay. I'll go anywhere. Good. Good. Yeah, man. I mean, look, I, I fully agree. And it used to be, like in the 90s and even the 2000s like there was more consensus around distrusting the big drug manufacturers um mm-hmm. and and now it's become i think more of like a hot button issue probably because of covid mostly uh but look there are amazing drugs out there um what would really be awesome is if we built the habits and behaviors at a younger age or even at whatever age you're at to put yourself in a position where you don't have to use those drugs. But you still might have to, right? But to to decrease the number of, of drugs that you'll have to use 
and your likelihood of having to get on them. Yeah. But, you know, thought maybe you were like JFK or I didn't know what exactly was going to. Oh, dude, that that's crazy as well. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're not actually. I mean, dude, especially like living here, like I, I, I drive mm, where he was shot every day, two times a day. I drive mm-hmm. to jujitsu and back from jujitsu, and I go right over the gra- I go right by the grassy knoll. I go right over where he was killed. I go by his monument, um, and then to see <laughs> just both the right and the left not tell us what actually happened and not give away all the files. It's like you know, like. And they've they've released more. Biden did release a little bit more this past year that a lot of it went largely uncovered by mainstream politics. But mm-hmm. like uh, no president has ever fully given away all of the files regarding his death. And it's like there's only one reason why. They know that like it would lead to the massive distrust of the government. Like <laughs> there's no other reason why they wouldn't like they wouldn't share all that information about the truth of his death. It's just it's crazy to me. All right, what do we got? How to be a personal trainer. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Mike and Jordan. I have a client who's 4'11", female, 28 years old, 115 pounds, and wants to lose her belly pooch. I had her track her calories, and her average is 1,200 per day. Some days she only eats like 850 calories, too. What do I tell her to do so that she can lose fat? Thanks for your help. Megan. Wait, she's 115 pounds. Did she say how, how tall? Under five feet, 4'11". Okay. That's a body image issue. That that's, there's, she doesn't have a belly pooch. Like she, she might store some belly fat, some fat in her belly, uh, more than other areas of her body, just based on genetics and, and where she's predisposed to store fat, but under five feet, 115. I, here's what I think. Get her lifting weights. Get her strength training, increase her protein intake. I would take her calories up to maintenance. Um, and I would make sure she's getting her steps in, eating around maintenance, and lifting. You're gonna see the best physiological changes there. Um, I don't think it's possible for someone under five feet, and I think Mike, you're gonna disagree with this, but here's I, I don't think it's someone it's possible for someone under five feet and 115 pounds to have a belly pooch. I just don't. I think that it's a warped sense of what normal looks like. I think that's a warped sense of like, hey, yeah, you're supposed to have a little body fat. I don't think that's a true belly pooch. I'm not saying that there isn't body fat there. I'm saying that that body fat is probably fucking normal. And it's really, it's not a pooch. I think a pooch is probably the wrong way to describe it. And it's coming from a place of a disordered relationship with her body. I think that that the best way to continue to lean out and to quote unquote tone up is to be take her calories to maintenance, increase her protein, make make sure she's lifting and getting her steps in. That'll solve the problems within a, a year to three years of being super consistent doing that. But um yeah, I would also have the conversation around being like, you're 115 pounds. Like you're you don't have a pooch. You might have more body fat you want to lose and that's fine. We can discuss that. But let's talk about how you're talking about your body because that's not accurate. That's what I would say. I completely agree with your uh, your recommendation. Like, focus on building muscle, building strength, getting your calories up. Maybe she went from one thirty to one fifteen recently. Is like starting to stall out a little bit. Um, uh, 
you can definitely, it depends on your definition of pooch, right? But if you have no lean mass, if you mm-hmm. haven't strength trained, 4'11 is tiny. And so yeah. you can have a little belly. Like, and, and I understand there's a very good chance that it is a body image issue. Um, but you could also just like have no lean mass and store most of your body fat there and have a little pooch. Uh, mm-hmm. The answer is still not, we're going to hammer low calorie and mm-hmm. try to lose more fat. And, oh, 1,200 is not getting it done. We're going to 1050. That's not getting it done. We're going to 970. Like, no. You're not going to strong arm your way through this to, like, whatever she wants, 105. Especially because you're you're not – you might end up reducing scale weight if you do just continue to lower calories and increase activity. You're not actually going to improve her physique. Like, to to get her to how she wants to look two years, three years down the road requires building a solid amount of muscle – building or uh, uh, gaining weight on the scale, like recomping some, but probably having the scale go up some over that time frame, and then maybe losing fat again at some point in the future. Um, if she, if she hasn't done a ton of strength training though, I actually think that she can recomp quite nicely by simply focusing on getting stronger, uh, you know, strength training a few days a week, getting stronger on compound movements, game over. Yeah. Agreed. Hey, Mike and Jordan, I wanted to reach out with a few questions that maybe you could cover one day on the podcast. Uh, Thoughts on exercises like a renegade row or triceps kickback while in a plank. Also, squat with shoulder press. Hold on. Hold on. Pause right there before you go on to the rest. Renegade rows suck. Number one. Hang on. This is going to be your answer. You're going into more. let's Let's cover each one individually. Okay. The one that got me, like I hate renegade rows. I'm happy to talk about why. All, all all exercises where you're doing more than one exercise in one is awful and is inefficient and is yeah. like if you want to do it for endurance or to get your heart rate up, there are way better ways to do endurance and get your heart rate up. You are like a, a lunge to curl, a squat to press. Yeah. You're you're never gonna be like at an RPE eight for two different movement patterns on the like at the exact same time. You're either right. going to be not making optimal bicep progress because you can, you can curl more than you can shoulder press or vice versa. Usually, you can shoulder press more than you can curl. And so, pairing these up, you're just leaving massive amounts of progress on the table. Now, someone might say, well, I don't have a lot of time to work out, so I'm trying to like squeeze it all in. Cool. Uh, superset the two movements. Like Reduce rest time. There, there are other ways to do that, but by selecting a weight, you're limiting yourself on your stronger movement. And so you're not going to make as much progress on your stronger movement. Fact. Did, did they say a plank with a tricep extension? <laughs> yeah. Let me finish the question. That, when I heard that, my brain just, Broke. I, it, it fried. I was like, what the fuck was, how do you do a plank and a tricep extension at the same time? It's a great question. Turns into like a single arm plank with a tricep. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I need to see a video of this shit. Also, squat with shoulder press. Would y'all program these? I kind of roll my eyes at some of these exercises because I don't see the point unless the goal is moving in a way that's different than normal. I don't see these helping with hypertrophy or strength, but maybe endurance. Renegade row, I feel like is really pointless, but would love to hear y'all's thoughts. Love that. Yeah. Renegade row, renegade row sucks shit. People always get mad when I say that it sucks. It's a terrible exercise. It's terrible. There's no reason to be doing it. Um, it doesn't take working with that many general population clients to quickly realize that their wrists are going to hurt dramatically. And it'd be just far better if they did a plank superset with a dumbbell row. 
you get the best of both worlds. You strengthen their back, which is what you want, and you strengthen their core, which is what you want. Superset them back and forth. Don't try and do the both the same fucking movement. I will say a uh, squat to a press. There's a another word for this is is called a thruster, whether you're doing dumbbells or barbells, and that's a very good conditioning exercise, but it's for conditioning. So you shouldn't be loading it up super heavy so the squat is really heavy. It should be very lightweight, if I'm doing it, I'm using, if I'm doing it with dumbbells, I'll use between like 10 to at most 20 pound dumbbells at most. And I can lift way more than that, but it's, it's, it's when you're doing it for a conditioning purpose, a squat to an overhead press, which is really just a thruster. I would never use it for strength. I would never use it for hypertrophy. I would only use that specific one for an endurance type workout. Um, plank with the tricep extension quite literally sounds like the absolute dumbest exercise I've ever heard of in my life. I just, I can't imagine how it's done. I see no reason for it to be done. If you want to strengthen their core, do a plank. You want to get their triceps stronger, more defined, whatever. Feel free to do tricep extensions as one of your exercises. But yeah, those, like Mike said, combination exercises for the vast majority of people and for the vast majority of goals are a waste of time. And even if you are going to program them like for conditioning in that one example that you gave, if getting stronger on a squat is also a goal, you're going to be doing the conditioning work at the very end of the workout, lighter, lower rest, higher rep. Your primary focus is going to be doing an actual squat with loads closer to, to failure. Yep. You have a plank with a tricep kickback. I don't know about that one. I don't even know how that works. Are you, did you bring the dumbbell back up to the front with you? I don't, pfft, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of these exercises get programmed by coaches who just want to make their clients do something hard. And, uh, and by hard, I mean like get your heart rate up, get sweaty and clients end up going to these types of, you know, coaches or classes or whatever it is because they want the feeling of doing something hard, right? Like a sweaty workout essentially when, uh, as we know, like hard isn't always optimal. Yeah. I, I think usually it's newer coaches, oftentimes newer coaches who feel like, I think one of the biggest struggles among newer coaches is them feeling like they have to entertain their clients with new exercises. I, I, I think for me personally, it was one of the most difficult things. And for a lot of coaches that we talk with, that we sp speak with in the mentorship and just in general, they, they feel like their clients are getting bored. And there are a couple of things you have to remember. Number one is effective strength training is boring, especially after you've been doing it for a long time. Your clients aren't nearly as bored as you think they are because you're writing new programs for, I don't know, 10, 20, 40, 50, 70 clients, whatever it is. And you're programming the same exercises over and over and over and over again, however many times a week and month. They're getting one program. That's it. And so they're not seeing the same exercises as many times as you are. So your perception of what you think they're bored with is actually very flawed. And, um, and they're probably not bored with it. Sometimes they might be. But those are usually the more advanced people. People have been doing it for a while. Uh, but even then, if I had a client who was like, hey, I'm bored. Can we do something different? I'd be like, yeah, sure. Instead of doing a dumbbell row, we'll do a pause dumbbell row. Or instead of doing a pause dumbbell row, we'll, we'll do an inverted row. Instead of doing an inverted row, we'll do a, a seated cable row, whatever it is. But like we're still doing rows no matter, no matter what. And we're not doing a seated cable row 
with a tricep extension superset just because like you're fucking bored. It makes no sense. If you want to, if you want to coach to do that, then, then we'll separate and you go find. And I've had clients do that. Not many, but I've had clients do that. And then they come back within like three to six months. Like, okay. Yeah. I, it wasn't as good as they thought it was going to be. And they realized that being entertained is far less important than actually getting, if getting results. Mm. Well said. Okay. Here's a question that I think I'm very interested to hear your response to this. So this, this woman asked, she said, why do fitness influencers act like macros will change your life? Even if you already track calories, which I'm very interested to hear your response to this. I've never seen a fitness influencer act like macros will change your life. Even if you already track calories. Okay. But let's assume they do. Let's just, you don't even have to assume they do. Let's, I like calories just tell you how much total energy you're eating. Mm -hmm. They don't tell you anything about the composition of what you're eating and how mm -hmm. that impacts your, your performance, your body composition, your sleep, your energy. It's, it's, if you only, it would sort of be like saying, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy off the top of my head, but it would sort of be like, why does every financial advisor really prioritize making a budget and understanding your income and your expenses and not just understand how much money you have in your bank in total? It's like, well, it's because that can change at any point in time based on your income, based on your expenses, based on your budget, based on you want to have a certain amount saved for God forbid for an emergency. You want to know how to get more in if you need it. You want to know how to build up enough so that you can help make your money work for you. There's a lot of a deeper dive than just simply how much total you have. And that's why like, I, I think, I think that it's, if we're breaking it down, what's most important, I think calories are the most important, especially at the beginning. And especially if weight loss and fat loss specifically is the goal. But if all of your knowledge is centered around calories and you don't know deeper understanding macros or anything like that, it's sort of like reading the back of the book, but not reading the book. Mm. You just like, you understand what it's about, mm -hmm. but you don't really know the storyline. You don't know, you, you don't really know what, what with the depth of each character, you're not really getting the whole book. You're just getting the enough to maybe pass a pop quiz in high school, but you're not actually getting enough to understand what's going on in the book. I don't know. That's my thoughts. Solid analogy. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's tremendous benefit I don't know if it'll change your whole life, but protein to start because it's the most important of the macronutrients is going to lead to, if you're just tracking calories, you're not paying attention to your macros and you're not prioritizing protein, you're almost certainly under eating protein. And if you go from not eating enough protein to eating adequate protein, you're going to build more muscle. You're going to get stronger. You're actually going to be able to hit your calorie target more consistently because having adequate protein is going to help with satiety. It's going to help regulate your hunger. It's going to help lead you to a place where you're less likely to overeat than if you were to eat the majority of your calories from carbs and fats exclusively. Um, so that's one way that uh, focusing on your macros rather than just your calories will make a difference. Uh, between carbs and fats, by tracking carbs and fats, by tracking all three macronutrients for a period of time, at the very least, you're going to find out what, like the macronutrient composition of the foods you like to eat, 
And from there, you're going to find out whether or not you do better or worse on higher carb or higher fat uh, from a digestive perspective, uh, from a training performance perspective, from a, a brain performance. Like, you know, if I have 150 carbs at breakfast because I'm bulking and I'm eating 450 grams of carbs per day, I'm in trouble for the day from a cognitive point of view. I just had 150 carb. Like my next four to six hours of work is not going to be good at all compared to if I didn't have 30 grams of carbs, if I had somewhere between like zero or 150 grams of carbs, if I had somewhere between zero and I don't know, 40 grams of carbs at breakfast with some protein and some fat, I'm going to feel much better. I'm going to be able to think more clearly. I'm not going to want to take a nap. So like by tracking, you're going to learn these things about yourself before bed. Like we all, well, I don't know if we all know, but I know that Jordan likes to have carbs before bed because it improves his sleep quality. If he didn't know that whatever, oatmeal, cinnamon toast crunch, bread, sweet potatoes, if he didn't know that these foods were carb dense, he only knew that 111 calories in this, 76 calories in this, 240 calories in this, he wouldn't know that carbs improve his sleep. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, you're, uh, you're not just reading the back of the book, you're reading the inside of the book, you're, you're going to have a more comprehensive understanding uh, of what you're putting in your body and how it affects you. Yeah, that's 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 what I wanted to hear. My my buddy Tyler Minton, he he said it in a way that I loved. He said, "Calories determine what you weigh, macros determine how you look, and micros determine how you feel." Mm. And I it's I think it's a little bit oversimplified. It's not 100%, but overall I really like it. Mm -hmm. I think and it, and it helps explain the benefit for everyday general population understanding. Listen, if you want to lose weight or gain weight, calories are the priority. If you want to change how your body looks, change the composition, build more muscle, lose more fat, you have to not only have your calories in check, but also your macros in check. And if you want to feel your best, you got to have a lot of micro, micronutrient dense food. You got to have a lot of like micronutrients, fruits and vegetables and all that stuff to help optimize that, that side of things. So I really like that way of looking at it and understanding the base of the pyramid. Yeah, calories for sure. But just because it's the base doesn't mean the rest doesn't matter. Well said. Good pod. That was it. That was great. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you're not watching on YouTube yet, we don't know what you're doing. But uh, <laughs> we, we do really appreciate all of the kind messages that you send. So to everyone who sent us messages, thank you so much. All the, the kind words and the reviews have been incredible. So thank you. If you haven't left a review yet, yet please, pl please do, especially... Actually, only if it's a five-star. If it's not a five-star, no need to leave a review. Uh, but thank you very much. We appreciate you. Have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>